Welcome everybody to Understanding the Power of Money, what everyone needs to know about money but are too afraid to ask. I'm Amit Chopra, a certified financial planner, and I'm here to show you just how powerful money really is. So I was at a Yankee game recently with a buddy of mine who happens to be a client. And funny enough, he was having a conversation with me about the value of of engaging a certified financial planner, which is what I am. And seeing as how he was a client, I was a little worried that he was going to tell me I wasn't providing enough value. Uh, but you know, his argument is that engaging a financial planner uh, doesn't make sense if that CFP isn't outperforming the broader markets. Now, I reminded him that outperforming the broader markets is kind of luck. Uh, I wish I would take some credit for it. I wish I could tell him that I had some special sauce. But, uh, you know, frankly, his account hasn't outperformed the broader markets year over year. It doesn't happen every year. It's not a consistent thing to be able to do. And that's okay. His risk tolerance doesn't call for 100% market exposure. But he also mentioned how his own investing methodology in his own trading account has also underperformed the market. And he believes primarily in indexing for his own portfolios, but he can't help himself from zigging or zagging when the market is volatile or he hears something on TV or, or reads something, whatever it is. So, you know, the, the conversation is, well, where does the value come in? If, if, if we're not outperforming the market, if your advisor doesn't outperform the market, uh, if the performance is not there or is not better than just an index, where's the value? And I tell them, well, you know, I think the real value is in the decision-making process. Everybody asks me about performance or about how to pick stocks, right? Uh, once people know what I do for a living, the first thing they ask me is, oh, well, what's the next hot stock? Or have you heard of XYZ? What do you think of this? Or what do you think of that? But nobody ever asks the question of, hey, what's your process for making decisions? Do you have a decision-making process? What goes into it? And I ask my clients that all the time. What's their decision-making process? Have they ever defined it? Have they ever written it down? Well, one of the great things that I learned early in my career was to create a process for almost everything. And a decision-making process is one of the best things that I've ever created. And so at Forefront Wealth Planning, which is the firm I run, that decision-making process is not so much about a step-by-step -step way of deciphering the information. It's more a step-by-step -step process to save me and, and really everyone on my team from ourselves. Let me explain. So logical fallacies are human nature. Uh, they are errors in your reasoning that you know it work to undermine a, a really a quality, rational uh, thinking for making a decision. So there are a lot of logical fallacies. But within my own methodology for making decisions, you know, I always pay attention to the few that I know I'm prone to. Right, Because the thing about logical fallacies is that they're inevitable. It's human nature. You have to learn about them, identify them, and most importantly, avoid them. 
right? Being insightful, understanding yourself is a really big part of being able to create a decision-making process. So what do me and my team fall into uh, sometimes? One of the major things that we run into, one of the logical fallacies that we have to really actively work against, and all of us have to because of this 24-hour news cycle we have, is the appeal to authority. So I used to think that, uh, you know, as humans, we have this drastic problem of an over-reliance on the perspective of an expert, you know, to help support your decision. And that expert is normally some talking head on TV, uh, some CNBC expert when it comes to finance, some guy on, on CNBC that you notice, you know, all in all, listening to experts is great advice. I think the bigger question uh, is what makes them an expert? So fantasy football season is coming up. I was with my buddy at this Yankee game when we we're having this conversation. I also play fantasy football with him. I love fantasy football, much like the millions and millions of people who play it each year. So I've been doing fantasy football with the same guys for, I mean, honestly, I think we're going on a decade now. Um, it makes me feel a little bit old. But nonetheless, you know what? My my fantasy baseball uh, team that I've been doing has been with the same guys for 20 years now. It's a little crazy. But fantasy football season is coming up. I can always tell the people in my draft who pulled up an ESPN article from one of their quote-unquote fantasy gurus, uh, and they're just picking players off of that list that this fantasy guru created. Those people inevitably always end up at the bottom of the standards. Uh, you know, an expert's support of your decision can be a feature of why you're making that decision, but not a pillar. Right. Jim Cramer is extremely intelligent, but his job is not to be an expert. It's to get you to watch him on TV so they can sell ad spaces around his segments and shows. So, you know, that appeal to authority, it's OK. Uh, listening to an authority, listening to an expert in that field. In fact, that's great advice. The question is, who is the expert? What makes them an expert? Being on television does not make you an expert. I can promise you that. So one of the things I really, I really focus on is when we do research, we have found uh, groups of analysts, groups of, of, of companies that create research reports that we trust. But we also really are careful about who we're listening to and what their credentials are. And that doesn't mean you need to have gone to school or, or, or have some fancy degree. It's more your experience. How long have you been doing this? What what gives you an expertise in this particular thing? Uh, much like many of us, myself included, think our grandmothers, and in my case, my children think my mother and my mother-in-law are the absolute best chefs in the whole world. They're experts. And you know why they think that? Because they've been cooking for a really long time for the entire family, and everybody says how much they love their food. You don't need to, to have credentials necessarily, right? They're not Michelin star uh, chefs, but experience, confidence from others, that all goes into determining who an expert is. And that's a really big deal when we're making a decision. The sunk cost fallacy. Now, this is something that is is a me issue. Uh, my team is really good at it. They they always point it out to me when when I'm like this. 
So I'm sure I've, I've said this before. I used to be extremely overweight. I think at my heaviest, I was pushing uh, about 305 pounds. So I made a change in my life. I started to exercise and eat right. My, my children were, were a nice catalyst for that. So through you know hard work, diet, exercise, a little bit of misery, I was able to lose 120 pounds. I took my life back from uh, almost certain early morbidity. Uh, this was about six years ago. Six years ago. Just want to reiterate that. I just threw out a box of Pop-Tarts that I had from then. Now, before I explain, let me just be clear. The shelf life of Pop-Tarts is absolutely astounding. These Pop-Tarts weren't even expired yet, and I've owned them for six years. You know, every time my wife and I went to throw out this box of Pop-Tarts, I always told her, no, 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 keep it, keep it. We already paid for it. I didn't want to waste the money, right? You don't want to waste food. I don't want to waste money. The sunk cost fallacy. I had already spent the money. I wanted to get my value from it. I wanted to eat it. No matter if it was gonna what it was gonna cost me in the future or if it could have derailed my success in losing the weight. I held on to this box of Pop Tarts for six years. I never opened it. And honestly, we never even gave it a, a second thought unless we were talking about getting rid of it. But Holding on to something because you feel like you haven't gotten value of it or because you feel like you've lost value without giving the future a second thought, that's how people end up holding stocks all the way to zero. So I am consciously frugal. Uh, it's my it's my fancy way of saying I'm pretty cheap. So I look for value. I want to get value out of everything, but sometimes you cut your losses. And the sunk cost fallacy is is something that we really work hard about, work hard to combat against. Now, being rational is hard to define, right? Bad decision makers they have a, a loosely drawn out map of their knowledge and skill set. Good decision makers, well. We're like cartographers. I say we are like I'm one of those people. Pat myself on the back a little bit. We're like cartographers. We have a distinguished map that is that has, you know, clear, settled and surveys surveyed areas of knowledge. They're clearly drawn out and labeled. I know what my skill set is. I know where my knowledge lies. I also know that there are unexplored territories in my brain, and those are clearly labeled and drawn out. That is knowledge that I don't have. You know, the definition of rational is being devoid of all delusions, uh, save those of observation, experience, and reflection. But being rational isn't really possible all the time. And we all have varied degrees of rationality. I am hyper-rational when it comes to planning for clients, doing research on, on, on individual equities or positions to own. I am far less rational when my children are running around the house playing tag, uh, throwing a ball, screaming, all while I try and write the script for this podcast. Sometimes your rational calculations fail, and they fail because you fail to account for the irrationality of other people. Right? Sometimes your rational calculations fail to account for the irrationality of other people. Now, it would be great if I could say that I thought of this, but I didn't. Uh, this comes directly from Mr. Spock and Star Trek, but it resonates. It really does. Right? Being rational is great, but sometimes the irrationality of other people derails it a little bit. 
you know, the hardest part of building wealth is understanding yourself and working around the logical fallacies that you know you're prone to. It's working around the irrationality that you know you're prone to. You have to recognize when you're wrong, seek out those blind spots, test your assumptions, and change course if necessary. This doesn't just go for you as an investor, but for a lot of times as me as an advisor, right? I practice this every day. And more importantly, just like I'm doing on this podcast, I share it with my clients. Because instead of asking me about performance or instead of asking me about how to pick stocks or what the next hot stock is, I think a more important question is, is what is your decision-making process and how is that going to help me build wealth? If building wealth is important to you, then you need a plan and your relationship with your financial advisor can make or break that plan. Click our website link below to get to know us better and start building that relationship now.